Blog Talk Radio. I stroll through the pictures What I've left behind You once again I'm locked up in memories They all Well, good evening and welcome to the Stock Child Abuse Now show on the Blog Talk Radio Network, sponsored by the National Association of Adult Survivors of Child Abuse. My name is Bill Murray. I'll be your keep turning the microphone off and someone keeps turning it back on or the other way around. Okay, let's start over. Uh, welcome to the Stop Child Abuse Now show on the Blog Talk Radio Network. My name is Bill Murray. I'll be your host tonight. Now, this organization, the National Association of Adult Survivors of Child Abuse, uh, presents five days a week a, a child abuse uh, prevention, intervention, and recovery show called SCAN, Stop Child Abuse Now. Some of our shows are shows that feature uh, special guests who tell their story to us uh, on, on the air, and, uh, and others are uh, shows that, that are fielding topics that are brought to the episode by you, the listener, um, and tonight is one of those shows. Uh, we have a special, uh, special guest, Monica Boslin, uh, who is going to help us lead tonight's show. He's... Um, Quite, she's got quite an quite a lot of experience uh, in the field of well, child abuse and trauma recovery. And joining me is also Victoria Kelly. Victoria is from Breezing, Minnesota tonight, <laughs> and I don't I don't uh, envy you, uh, Victoria, but you're here, and I appreciate it. And um, we'll move on now to the bulk of the show. This this is a um, an organization that. Uh, uses uh, a very simple mission statement. I'm going to read that. We have a single purpose at NASCA to address issues related to child abuse and trauma, including sexual assault, violent and physical abuse, emotional traumas, and neglect. And we do so with only two goals. One, educating the public, especially as it's related to helping society get over the taboo of discussing childhood sexual abuse, presenting facts showing child abuse to be a pandemic and worldwide problem that affects everyone. And two, offering hope and healing through numerous paths, providing many services to adult survivors of child abuse, and information for anyone interested in the many issues involving prevention, intervention, and recovery. Now, as I say, my name is Bill Murray. I'll be your host this evening. But I do want to um, engage right away with the other people that are here. Victoria, did you help? Did you hear me introduce you before? Um, no, I had uh, trouble getting on. Okay. Well, that's Victoria but I'm Kelly. Here now. <laughs> uh, yeah. And uh, I, I was having trouble, too. I don't know what was going on. But anyway, we're here together. 
And uh, and as I uh, said just a few minutes ago, we are joined by our special guest, Monica Bogland, who is here as well. Monica is from Washington State. Uh, she's a survivor of sexual, physical, and emotional child abuse. And her predators, in her case, were all family members. And her parents were intent on passing on to Monica the behavior that their parents had done to them. Now, this is very common. Uh, and we'll, I'm sure we'll hear more about this issue from Monica as we go through the show. But let me just welcome her to the show and get her voice heard. Monica, thanks for calling in tonight. Thanks so much for having me on, everyone. I first want to uh, take the time to say happy holidays, whatever holidays that we may be uh, celebrating. Uh, for those, I know it could be a time of uh, not really wanting to celebrate the holidays, but to let you all know that your NASA family is thinking about you as well. So thanks again for having me on. That's a good point, though, Monica, to bring up the fact that we uh, we act like a family because we are a family. You know, so many of us, like you, were abused in our own families or perhaps by people that were very close to us. And, you know, when we recover, our family doesn't recover with us. Our families are still broken, and, there's, and they still behave in patterns of behavior, using patterns of behavior that are really detrimental to our um, mental health, frankly. And so we, uh, we call ourselves the NASCA family because you will rarely find people at NASCA who don't understand and, and don't know how you feel. In fact, that's one of the things that binds us together, not the facts of what uh, we go through, um, some people like Monica would be abused by their family. Some people like me were abused outside the family, but with people that we're supposed to be able to trust, you know, and others, still others are abused by strangers, although that's a tiny perspective, tiny percentage is about less than 10%. Most of them are people who are abused in their families by extended family or by, you know, a mom's new boyfriend, a grandpa, Uncle George, so forth. And that, that's, um, that's the biggest group. The second biggest group is what I call the caretaker group, which is what I was abused in. The caretaker group uh, is, uh, is people that, um, that experience their abuse through people they're supposed to be able to trust. They do know them. <coughs> Often they're introduced to them by their own parents. <coughs> in my case, my parents had you know, nothing but the best in thought for me, but they had no idea what was going on behind the scenes because I was abused by someone I should have been able to trust and actually a bunch of people I should have been able to trust but didn't. In, in my case, it was, you know, clerics, priests and brothers in the Catholic Church. So that can happen in in teaching, in the teaching world, in the medical world, in the, I mean, it can happen anywhere. Uh, but that's the big, second biggest group of the people that are abused are abused by the caregiver group and two-thirds the family group and less than 10% by the stranger danger, by the, stranger, the true stranger that the child has no, uh, no relationship with. All right. Now, Monica, I know she got, a, she got to me a couple of days ago and said she had an idea for a topic because this show is is devoted to uh, coming up with topics that perhaps other people would like to join in on, and uh, and and by doing so, we you know we we all get to comment on on these topics. So I know Monica has at least one with her, 
a couple of days ago, and I'm going to ask her to repeat what it was so we can move forward with yeah. the show. Monica, what was that that you wanted to talk about? Um, well, I did my research because uh, typically I, I I want to wait until something moves me or I get inspired on what to look for. And I would say between my last show hosting and within the past little roll two weeks, um, I've had a medical issue that I've had to deal with pretty routine, but it's just kind of put me and my daily activity on the back burners for a little bit. And unfortunately, it's forced me to reach out to the family, quote, unquote, my parents, for help and assistance. And it just put another feather into my stance on why I am very infrequent with conversations with them, but more importantly, why they show me time and time again as I'm getting older, that they get older, that there's absolutely no even actual consciousness there of what the abuse was that they put us through, right? So I found a great right. article and was initially printed on a website called Everyday Feminism, and it, then it also popped up on another blog, um, and that blog is entitled The Body is Not an Apology. The title of the okay. article is Nine Ways to Be Accountable When You've Been Abusive. So the body of this article is from groups that support abuse survivors. However, abuse survivors themselves, through the research from the groups that are training people um, to get to the other side of their journey of healing, they realize that abuse survivors sometimes, unfortunately, can morph into abusers themselves. And so one of the topics came up is to, if we're truly going to get to the root cause of the problem, is there a way or some system or services out there to support the abuse, the abusers? Or if the abusers are calling in and the abusers want help or they want to stop. So it was basically a flat-out kind of line in the sand. It's not a a typical no, but the whole focus of either of these groups is the focus to be on the survivor first. And then what they would typically do is if uh, situations that we know with abuse very rarely make themselves through the court systems up to the point of uh, jail or this or that, things of that nature. And pretty much the question is, well, what happens to the abuser? So what we want to try to do is make sure that we support the survivor in understanding that you have got to put you first. So I want to put a different spin on how the article was written and to let our survivors know that these are going to be nine ways that the abuser actually avoids accountability, if that makes sense. Still be in the throes of either attracting abusive personalities or abusive people, abusive boyfriends, wives, girlfriends, things of that nature. We may still be in the habit of being attracted to that because we really haven't identified and begin our journey of healing to know that it's up to us to stop 
what we're allowing to come into our lives as adults when it relates to toxic and abusive people. So I want any of the survivors hearing us to know that we're here for you first. And these nine topics that we get to everything, it's something that your abusers will never do. So it's probably something on the list that each of us is actually coming to uh, close proximity with when we try to reach out and get some answers or get some kind of clarity against those who have a view. All right. So I'll tell you what, Monica, just to whet our appetite, can you uh, can you give us the, the first item on this list of nine, and then I'm going to have something to say to the listener. But what's the first item? All right. The first item says, um, again, that the to listen to the survivor. So we know that this is something that an abuser will never do, especially if they are still actively abusive or they are still actively in denial about their abuse. Um, they can still be in the um, headspace of where this is how I was raised or this is how I've always done things, or this is what was done to me. So your abuser right. will never listen mm-hmm. to you as the survivor speaking your truth to them. Okay. Let's um, invite the, the uh, public that's listening to the show to call in. I didn't do that earlier, but this is a participation show. And actually all our uh, shows are participation shows. They just have a different flavor to them. Tonight we're being led by Monica Bodwin from Washington State, um, and she's bringing up a list of things that she would like us to discuss. So that was the first of them. The number to dial is 646-595-2118, 646-595-2118. And I'm running what they call the studio here, and I will see you pop on if you call that number. Uh, you do not have to talk. But this is how you can talk. You call that number, and we'll ask you if you'd like to participate, you know, verbally or not. But you can also listen to the show on your radio, I mean, on your phone. And um, and so that's the idea. So 646-595-2118. At any point in the show, if you want to join in with us and you haven't done so yet, just call the number, and we'll, we'll see you come on. And uh, Monica will lead us now in the in the discussion of the nine things that uh, she she's brought to the show for tonight's topics. Um, Victoria, are you okay with this? <laughs> yeah, it sounds, sounds really good. Sounds like there's a lot, yeah. lot of information. Mm-hmm. A lot of ideas. All right. <laughs> uh, I want to apologize to everybody that's listening. I am sniffling a lot. I'm sick. Uh, you can't get you can't get sick from me through the computer, so that's good. <laughs> but, but I can't I can't necessarily control my sniffling and sneezing and blowing my nose and so forth. So I apologize ahead of time for that. <laughs> Monica, where would you like to take yeah. us first? Um, well, Victoria, do you want to add anything to that first topic about the abuser not listening to the survivor? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> um, um, yeah, definitely. Um, I don't even know where to start with that. <laughs> All I can say is that um, um, listening to um, a victim, I've been um, uh, working with uh, victims and survivors and drivers, as they call them, since 1985. 
And uh, um, that's the most important thing is the listening. I mean, you don't have to solve the problems. You don't have to make judgments. You don't have to make comments, nothing. For somebody to be listened to, I started out in Al-Anon, and it was my turn to talk the first time ever. I, You know, it was a while before I did. But I talked, and nobody interrupted me. Um, nobody offered, you know, jumped in and said, try to fix me or anything else. It just wasn't. And it was so weird because I never experienced that before. And I can't even tell you that. The weirdness that it felt, um, you know, because it never, you know, happened. And, and they actually let me talk till I was done talking. And it just blew me away. I left that meeting going, what the heck? <laughs> I mean, you could, you could jump in because, you know, I'm just explaining how that, you know, how that is uh, for a person that that nobody has listened to when you've tried, I've tried to share with my family. You know, it's either like, oh, you're too sensitive or you're looking at it wrong or, you know, um, um, all these things just, I felt like I was crazy because it seemed like um, I wasn't um, seeing things the way they did or I would say something that happened and, you know, well, I don't remember that I was drinking. You know, so all of a sudden they don't have to take account for anything, and so I right. can totally relate to what you're talking about there. Right. Okay. That's awesome. We've had that point come up before, Victoria, and uh, we've actually had it as a topic of discussion before. People not hearing you or telling you that they don't remember it the way it was or it didn't go down that way when they are discounting or diminishing your actual experience. We call that gaslighting, and that right. is a common trait of narcissistic, toxic people who just happen to be abusers. So it's just another way of them not doing whatever they possibly can to put as much distance between the truth of what happened and them. Mm-hmm. So it's a very mm-hmm. thing with abusers. All right, another then- topic I've got here, topic number two. It says that, of course, it, we're listing them as we go on what the article is, but these are things that the abuser won't do. The abuser will not take responsibility for the abuse. Um, I'll throw this out here, again, dealing with my medical issue the past two weeks. I called my parents about a month and a half ago, and I haven't spoken with them physically on the phone or otherwise in about three and a half, almost four years. That has been a good go-to point for me because there is no connection there at all as far as a mother, parent, mother, father, whatever relationship, because I have in vain for the past 20 years tried to inch around, try to take it easy, not really just really go gung-ho and go in about having lupus. And lupus is a result of ACEs my ACEs adverse childhood experiences comes from the toxic household with two alcoholic parents and physical abuse. Um, so what I did was anytime I would have a flare-up or a mild hospital issue or something, I would call them, and it's my fault. I would downplay it, but I would let them know this is because of the lupus. This is what I'm dealing with. But you guys can't stress me out. You have to listen. We're going to have to talk. This is why I'm having lupus, things of that nature. 
So it's just for one, I will give it ignorance, for lack of a better word, but just not very in tune on certain things medically. But then also, secondly, they just don't listen to me. And these are individuals that are well into their mid to late 70s. So that brought me to me having my medical emergency, and I needed to get some medical history uh, from both of them. And calling my mother, and I already knew that this was not going to go as well as I planned because my mother is the type of woman, um, from what I understand, she and one of her younger sisters were molested as young girls, but a very well-kept, tight secret that I didn't know about until I was well into my late 20s and early 30s. And I never got the truth from my mother. It came from her sister, who's an aunt. Um, but my mother was never the type during any of my years growing up as a young woman to have conversations with me about becoming a young woman and the things that we go through in puberty and things of that nature. It was always just swept under the rug. Well, don't talk to me about it. Well, wait to ask and go to your doctor and never understood why my mother was so adverse to talking about it. But the truth is she was running away from speaking about anything sexual because of her own trauma. So fast forward to this conversation, I'm asking her questions, and she goes right back into what I call the turtle in the shell. The head is poking out here and there with just general questions I'm asking, but when I'm getting into detail about a possible surgery that I may need that she's already had, and it's... I don't think I'm I'm comfortable talking about this. Well, the hospital that I went to is no longer there. I don't have the doctor's info anymore. Um, I'm not really sure how this pertains to you, things of that nature. I could see that the more I just wanted to get to the finite of the four or five questions I wanted was not going to happen. So I had to let her talk and babble on and then repeat the question once, repeat it twice, repeat it three times to where she was literally wind it, and I can kind of wear her down, and I can get the question from her. The second half of that went to a conversation that I had to call with my father about, and my father is not the type of man who has ever known how to express either of them, really, but my father expressed love or nurturing or anything. So when I'm getting to the point that I'm telling him of my condition that I have now, it's probably showing up a little more worrisome than normal is because of the lupus. He actually begins on this trajectory of what's my own fault because I moved away from home and I don't keep in contact with my parents and I don't talk to them and I don't let them know what's going on with me and all this kind of stuff. So I'm like, well, what has this got to do with my potential surgery? What does this have to do with any of you if you're concerned you want, you want to give support and say that. You have a phone number. Pick the phone up and call me and check in on me. And I just finally just got tired of the back and forth on the conversation. It's like, are you really serious? You're starting an argument with me and making my health problems about me not being in communication with you. The level of your tone and your voice is rising, getting very disrespectful. You're just getting completely off. This is why I have lupus, because you are still very much abusive and threatening and non-supportive and you don't listen when I bring things serious of this nature to the table to you. 
I don't bug you guys at all. I call you every three, four, five years. You know I'm well. I know you're well, but we don't have a relationship because you all refuse to acknowledge the abuse. And that is where the ball dropped. It is not our, it's our fault that you're sick. Is this what you're saying? No, I'm not saying it. I'm telling you what doctors are saying. And I've been telling you for 20 years. But I just had to shoot it straight from the hip today because you don't listen any other way. If I yell at you, they can receive it. But speaking, nurturing, and emotionally, they didn't get it. So it was still no acknowledgement, abuse, and even no acknowledgement of my current medical situation because whatever that means to them, to accept responsibility of it, they actually have to admit to themselves that they did what they did, and that's ultimately what that boils down to. Right. Well, you certainly have brought us some fascinating uh, information tonight and some fascinating topics. Uh, I hope other people can see the benefit of, uh, of proceeding tonight with their participation. I'd love them to call in uh, at our, our permanent number that's uh, dedicated to this show, which is 646-595-2118, 646-595-2118. Our special guest tonight is Monica Bodwin, and she is going to uh, – she's a survivor of sexual, physical, and emotional child abuse, and her, her predators were – all family members. Her parents were intent on passing on to Monica the behaviors that, the, that their parents had done to them, as, as you just heard. Um, she also has lived with lupus since she was 29. I didn't read this before, but uh, it's always in the biography for her. And this is a painful autoimmune disease that's long been linked to severe uh, cases of childhood adverse childhood experiences, which are called ACEs, A-C-E-S. Adverse Childhood Experience. Um, and you can look up the ACEs study to find out what that means. Uh, but it's a, it's a very simple test. It's 10 questions. And the more questions you answer yes to, it's a yes, yes or no kind of questionnaire. <clears throat> the more p- questions you answer yes, the more likely it is that you've had some devastating experiences in your life that have, that have left you in trauma of some sort. So. That's what the ACEs is. You're also um, learning your, earning your master's, I think, in metaphysical science and counseling, and you're also on your way to be in the same field. So this is pretty impressive to me. <laughs> um, like you, I hope that further use of your story is as a way to become of service and to help others along their path to healing will be will be what you continue to do because, you know, you now know, and I do too, and so does Victoria, that plenty of help is available. We have to be susceptible to it. We have to be open to it, you know, because you can't say no and and expect, uh, you know, to make progress. You have to say yes, or you have to say probably yes. <laughs> you can't say yes fully. You have to leave the door open a little bit. But tonight we're talking about a series of, Topics that come from an article that Monica has found, and she's taking us through the, the first three so far of nine. And I'm hoping that this will spur some uh, some call-in people to participate here too, because that's the idea. 
uh, th- this is not my show. It's not Victoria's show. It's not even Monica's show. It's our show. It's the, it's the Stop Child Abuse Now show, and it's uh, it's run by the NASCAR organization and family. So you, if you if you say you belong to it, you do. <laughs> there's no dues or fees, and there's no registration. It's just a matter of I think I'm a member of the NASCAR. I, I claim myself to be a member of the NASCAR family, and you're in. So, uh, Monica, where are we up to this point? The fourth topic? Yep. Um, the next on the list says that the abuser will not accept that their reasons are not excuses. So, in short, they won't accept that their reasons for the abuse are excuses. And, again, if they give a reason for the abuse, it's a reason in their head, but it's still also not real acknowledgement or an apology. So how does anyone feel about that? Well, I think think other people, in my experience, other people – um, when when I've explained the way that I was treated by my biological mother or sperm donor, as I say, the abuse and everything, um, followed up by, well, you know, he was probably abused, you know, and, and all of a sudden it's like, um, <laughs> it, it's all, you know, the responsibility taken off of him, I feel. Um, and And it just, I feel, you know, negated on all that. Um, I did also want to make a comment on the other topic that you brought up. Um, when I brought up to, I had a daughter and I'd left my abuser and I stay at my grandparents' house and I started parenting classes and my grandmother and, and there was abuse in my grandparents. They adopted me, but there was abuse there. And so I said to my grandmother, I, you know, she says, um, why are you going to parenting classes? And I said, well, because I want to be a better parent, you know. And she said, well, I went to parenting class, and you turned out just fine. <laughs> and I thought, yeah, fine. I'm just a the bottom door of scattered you. You know, if you think that's fine, you know. And um, so now my definition of fine is effed up, insecure, neurotic, and emotional. So, yeah, I turned out fine, you know. Um but but it was really difficult because, um, you know, telling my grandfather that you know, I was leaving, leaving my uh, husband because he had picked up my daughter and started shaking her and wouldn't let me go nowhere and was making drugs and this and that and everything else. And, um, you know, when I finally decided to leave him after he shook my daughter, um, escape from him, I should say, um, then um, his question to me was, did he hit you? And it was like, no, he never hit me, you know. And, and it was just the way you're leaving him then. And it just, he knew all the stuff that had gone on. And that was just the way that they thought, you know. And and not as an excuse, but I ended up um, going to the psych ward when I was 21 when I escaped from my biological father. And asked my grandparents, you know, to come in um, to therapy at the hospital. And they didn't want to come. They really felt like I was bringing them in to blame them, you know. And and really all I wanted to do is, like you said, have a conversation, you know, 
Let's talk let about me that. interject that yeah. there because I made the, the mm-hmm. attempt over 10 years ago for counseling with my father. Uh, again, uh-huh. he gets excuses or whatever the morning of the appointment, about an hour, I called to check his EPA, and he told mm-hmm. me flat out, I'm not coming. I just have something, just really no excuse, but he backed out and onto not coming. I would bring it up periodically later, and then he would just, again, lie and deny that he said he wasn't coming ever at all, as if I'm read your mind as far as rescheduling or something. So it came up again within this past two weeks of my medical thing that I'm done talking to you about how you're not nurturing and you don't know how to show caregiving tasks. Case in point, I am in the middle of a medical crisis, and you yet want to ask me how I'm feeling or how I'm doing because you don't know how. Uh, If Mm -hmm. you want to get this between us six, and the only relationship we have is something financial, it's up to you now to schedule counseling. I'm not going to be disappointed again. I'm not going to be let down, and I don't want to deal with the part of you as a father who is a coward because you refuse to show up for your daughter. So it wasn't that they were afraid of you blaming them. Remember I talked about gaslighting. That was just another reason that they gave you because they would mean that they would have to take responsibility and accountability in anything that they can do to get as far away from that as they can, they will do it. It's a fear tactic, which is why so many abusers show anger and disdain so much. Anger or being angry is not an actual um, emoting or an example of hatred. And hatred really and truly is not the opposite of love. It is indifference. Mm-hmm. Anger, being mad and upset, is actually the face of fear because they can't, they, uh, it's something in the brain that happens, especially when they become the adult, that they're just supposed to know everything and do everything right and not face their fears, for to you and anyone else to get close to the fears that they actually have, that someone will find out their secret. Someone will find out the, the, and rip the mask off, that they're not these goody two-shoes or nice people that they present to the world, that we know them as the real abuser. Then they show up as angry because the anger is used as the way to kind of scare people off. I tell people is what's really the difference between outside of the spiritual connotations of it. What's really the difference between Halloween and Easter? You've got people dressing up for both occasions in Halloween costumes. On Halloween, someone just dresses up as a scary bad guy. On Easter, they dress up as the nice Easter bunny. But underneath those masks, either on either occasion, you could have the really bad, scary serial killer. You know what I mean? So they're very uh, astute at developing and wearing the mask. So I want you to understand that part and not carry part of that instance with you any longer. It wasn't about them. It was a reason that they gave to get out of the situation, to not come Mm -hmm. to therapy because of what therapy actually stood for for them. And therapy meant that they would have to face and it, it, so well, they actually they actually get going creating that didn't show up. 
they actually did go to therapy and um uh, because they were very concerned about about my how I, you know I couldn't put words together I couldn't do this or that because I escaped from my biological father and and my grandmother felt responsible uh, for, for you know that he came over and took me out and stuff happened and and you know they didn't know I helped me but but they were afraid they were going to be blamed um, and and they did go to therapy with me. And they, and they were supportive, um, you know, but they, um, you know, they never really raised themselves with any kind of love or nurture support. Like you said, too, my grandmother was, you know, she was abused by her brothers. Her mom died when she was seven. And, and you know, things like um, they had, they had like, um, you know, the classes for girls about your period and everything else and, and she she wouldn't let me go because you know, I wasn't going to learn that dirty stuff. And I started my period, and I didn't know what it was. I was bleeding death, you know. And she just drugged me downstairs and told me to wait. Set my grandfather off to get, you know, and carry belt napkins. <laughs> Come back, hands me the box and read this, you know. And I came out, and she just told me that, you know, that God's curse <laughs> to women. And that was, that was my education, you know. I mean, she had no concept of how to help me, which confused the hell out of me, you know. But um, my biological father, as far as, um, you know, um, I can remember one time telling him, you know, you're driving me crazy, and I just can't take this anymore. I just want to kill myself. He just started laughing really hideously, and he said, I can't believe I'm going to kill my own daughter. I finally have you where I want you now. I can have my way and dragged me in the back of a van out in the middle of the woods and started reading me. I was sure I was going to die. Like, he knew what he was doing, you know, but but just didn't care. And the possibility could actually be, again, from where I am with uh, the situation with my abuser, the possibility mm-hmm. is, is that he doesn't have the ability to care. Right. There could actually right. be something wrong in the brain where we're talking mm-hmm. about now scientifically how the brain works, um, yeah. that he just does not have the capacity to care. Mm-hmm. There's no compassion there. There's no empathy for others. And this is right. where uh, when psychologists are actually looking at behavior, they break it down between what is uh, sociopathy and psychology, right? So a mm-hmm. in the difference between the two, um, psychopathy happens when you actually have an ill-functioning or missing amygdala, which is responsible for the emotional sector of the brain. Sociopathy mm-hmm. happens when you are born or live or you highly experience an environment where people are incompassionate and don't show empathy, and you learn those same type of behaviors. But if you learn those behaviors, you can also unlearn them. So that's right. really and truly where um where a lot of that happens because we can act to a blue in the face why a person doesn't care and in their mm-hmm. head they think the things that they're doing if they just stop the physical abuse and that's it. Like you said earlier, grandmother I believe asked, Well did they hit you? But in her head the hitting part is the only type of abuse for her that she resonates. And we know that there is emotional, psychological, financial, uh, the list goes mm-hmm. on. 
So in their head, they only resonate with the one particle of truth that they have, and they have an inability to accept your truth, which is the full and finiteness of what actually happened to you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my brother right. said that too. He said the, the problem with um, he said the the problem is that that him and I do something wrong and we feel bad about it. You know, he said that you know our biological father did not care. It was his needs, and that was all that mattered. You know, it was just like destruction in his pathway, and he just didn't care what the destruction was as long as his needs were satisfied. Understood. And, again, yeah. that's another feather in the cap to the narcissistic personality mm-hmm. disorder, you know, that type of a toxic personality. They're, they yeah. suck up all of the oxygen and everything else in the room. Only the thing that matters is how people treat them or how people make them feel or people exalt them and put them on a pedestal. Absolutely no acknowledgement of their treatment of other people at all. So, um, and what makes that me that real sad is, as we get, we as victims get um, and survivors get these diagnoses, and it doesn't seem like the abusers are getting written down their diagnoses. So even when he was prosecuted and stuff, you know, and it went to a, um, therapy for being a sexual abuser, there was never anything written down as far as the diagnosis for him. It's like the ones that are getting to get help to heal, we're getting the labels and the stigma. And and he got to go back to a great job and, you know, um, um, you know, his mom would tell me how wonderful he was doing and, like, I was supposed to be happy for him that, that he's off living his wonderful life and I can't even leave my house. I'm so scared, you know. And, and it just boggles my mind. <laughs> All right, I want to take these next two points, and I'm going to put them together because they kind of piggyback off one another. Uh, So one says that the abusers typically like to play the survivor Olympics. And this means that if there is any acknowledgement on their part, uh, they still want to apologize or acknowledge what they did to you, but the first thing they will say is, well, or something like, this is how I was raised or this is what happened to me, or my dad did this to me. So they will try to um, um, upstage your abuse by trying to make theirs um, more be more apparent again, shifting the complete conversation away from them taking responsibility. The next one says that... Uh, they need to learn to take the survivor's lead, something that they won't do because they can't take the survivor's lead because going back to point one, they refuse to listen to the survivor because listening to the survivor, recounting your truth, uh, if not all of the abuse, maybe certain instances of abuse that stood out more, it means that they actually have to absorb the word abuse and hear it and then understand why it's affecting you the way that it will. So they will play this game of back and forth on, well, my abuse happened this way, and you don't hear me crying about it as a way, again, to diminish and dismiss your abuse and what you went through. 
So those two topics I think we can put together there. The abuser would not follow the survivor's lead, and they also will uh, try to play the survivor Olympics. So how does that sit with anyone? The survivor Olympics? Olympics? Yes. Okay, what's that? <laughs> the Survivor Olympics basically means that they are going to try to upstage your abuse. So they, if you get them to the point to where they are in communication or some type of um, conversation with you about the abuse, they will try to upstage your abuse by mentioning something that they went through abusive. So they will say, well, that's the way my parents raised me, or that's what my dad did to me, and you don't hear me crying about it. You don't hear me needing therapy. You know, my dad whipped our butts all the time. So they try to outpace or outrun you Mm -hmm. when it comes to you speaking to them. And, again, at some point in time, again, abuse is not, a completely, totally um, impulsive type of behavior. Because if it would, they would abuse every single person that they came into contact with every single minute of every day of their lives. So they don't do that. They abuse the vulnerable, and they abuse those who are more than likely in, like you said earlier, close proximity, family members or what uh, people may call intimate partners, relationships. But the abuse story to them means that they're going to take all of the wind out of your sails and minimize your experience of them as an abuser by telling you, I was abused as well, and this is what's happened to me, and basically saying if it happened to me, you need to suck it up because if that's what happens to you, because that's just how I was raised. So they do a tit for tat and a back and forth on whose abuse was worse or whose abuse actually was abuse, if that makes sense. Well, I had a similar experience, but it was when uh, after they prosecuted my biological father and my godfather had um, um, done some um, stuff to me, too. He would um, uh, French kiss me and give me half the hours or whatever, so we were at a party, my godmother would say, oh, I can't believe you made such a big thing about, you know, your dad doing that. So that happened to me, too, and, you know, and I'm fine, basically. And and I said, well, your husband, you know, um, was um, um, doing stuff to me as well, and um, and she, that, you know, that's how kind of she responded. And then he fell off his chair and was like, I don't know, having a heart attack? I don't know what he was doing. But he was on the floor grabbing his chest, and, and she started yelling at me, look what you're doing to him, look what you're doing to him. And I said, he's doing it to himself. I said, he's the one that did this to me, and I'm just bringing it up. And I had to leave the, I had to leave the building, you know, because I just couldn't be blamed for it anymore, you know. I felt like she was blaming me. 
because she was reacting because I brought, you know, I brought up the fact that to her, of course, I'm telling the secret, you know. And I will throw that out there. That's one thing that's come up before, um, and I like to hit the head on that to let us know that um, we have to start the adult us is going to be the advocate and the warrior for the kid in us that still holds those memories, that still, uh, like the conversations with my father, it got so intense, it brought me to tears. And I'm thinking, why am I spinning like this? I don't speak to this person. I don't, whatever with this person, I don't interact. So I had to get off of the conversation. And but I got to reach out to a master family member. So this is what we're here for. This is what we're there for. And I was able to call uh, another NASA family member, get her on the phone, and uh, she got me calm. She got me centered. She prayed for me. So give a big shout-out right now to Carol Levine. Thank you so much for that. I was spinning by the time that I got off the phone call with that because it was, I guess, part of me is like, where is this emotion coming from? And why am I giving this person this much power? And, again, I have to sit and I have to think, it's not me, Monica, it's them. They are not accepting, they are not acknowledging, they are not apologizing, they're still running. They're still not parenting you. They don't know how. They don't have a desire to do it. And so what they will, the adult in me has got to do when it comes up or whenever I'm triggered, I've got to start taking away their weapons and de-weaponizing them. Because at this point in time in our lives, we can put physical distance, we can put emotional distance, we can do what we need to do to cut these people out of their lives. But if they're in the same person, they haven't received help, they're not getting structure, they're not acknowledging, they're still very much the same person. And so they only have the same weapons that they had when we were those vulnerable kids. And the weapons that they typically use are silence and shame, secrets and stigma, anything along those lines that they can do to keep it quiet, to keep it in the closet, to keep it swept under the rug. Those are the same weapons that they have 20 or 30 years later. And, again, I encourage all of us at NASA, this is where we've got to start picking apart who these people are. And for me, it's helped tremendously to uh, studying behavior techniques and personality traits and moving into understanding human behavior because it took a while for me to understand with all of the gaslighting that I went through as a kid and me not really loving myself and caring enough about myself. Because for years, I would have an open-door policy for toxic, negative, abusive friendships or boyfriends or other situations because this is what I was used to with my parents. They laid the groundwork for all of my relationships. And it wasn't until I started to get to work on me that I realized I did love me And I can do things now to protect me. It's not about me fixing them. No longer about having the best job so they can be proud of me 
or buying them the best Christmas present so they can like me or things of that nature. It's no more about that. But I can remove the silence and openly speak about it. I can get over the shame that they try to guilt me into thinking somehow that abuse is my fault. We can get over the stigma of talking about abuse and surviving abuse as adults and definitely get over the secrets. So it's just one of those things that you'll have to learn to take your power back from. So if that's happening now, recently in the past, look at any of their behaviors, anything that you can really get a good handle on and put some context behind it and de-weaponize them and take your power back. I encourage all of us at NASA to be able to do that or to start to work towards doing that. And listening and calling into the show is one way that, that, that we can make that happen for ourselves. And because you've said yeah, that, I do want to make that this is uh, uh, intended to be a call-in show where people can participate on what we call our panel. Uh, and please do consider doing this. The number to dial is 646-595-2118. 646-595-2118. I, I do have to apologize to you two ladies. I'm I'm kind of out of it tonight and uh, just keeping the show going. I'm not really don't have the energy that I usually have. But the other the other thing I do want to make note of is that I'm not identifying a great deal with um, the topics that you guys are talking about because, as I said earlier in the show, my uh, main abusers were not my parents were not my family. And um, so I, it, it leaves me in a different perspective, with a different perspective about how do I get recovery? You know, how do I, how do I um, heal? You know, so anyway, I, I'm really appreciative that the two of you are having this talk because I know there's a lot of people out there who uh, need to hear it. And I wish that some of them would call in. Uh, 646-595-2118. And uh, believe me, Victoria doesn't bite much. Yeah. Um, I did want to bring up uh, what you're talking about. Because um, I, I would go back to my grandparents' house, and, and then I would go to therapy, and I would say, you know, I'm trying to bring up these issues and stuff, but I can't even, like, get it out of my mouth because I feel like I'm, like, this four-year-old kid again. And, you know, I'm just, like, afraid to, you know. Because there was no open communication, you know. Um, they drank on weekends, of course. In their mind, they were alcoholics, you know. And um, when I tried to quit drinking and stuff, they were like, oh, you think you're better than us now? You know, and um, I had, you know, I had a child and then I had another child. And, you know, I was trying to stand up not only for myself but for my kids. And to just tell myself that, you know, I'm an adult now. And I didn't have choices when I was a kid, but I do now. I didn't have a voice when I was a child, but I do now. And 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 it's a hard leap. I mean, I feel like it was a leap to go from feeling like I was that four-year-old kid to be able to walk in there and, you know, <laughs> say, no, I'm taking parenting classes because I want to be a better parent. And, and you know, I had my daughter stand in the corner, you know, time out and my grandma said 
look, you're making her cry. I said, I'm not making her cry. I'm making her stand in the corner. She's crying all on her own, you know. Oh, that's horrible. Oh, that's horrible. How could you do that to your child? And, you know, it's better than screaming and saying, you know, you're you're no good and you're a brat or, you know, all these other things that, that happened to me. And then I was back being that little kid again. And it was hard to to speak my truth with, you know, but it took a lot of therapy. Like I was talking in a group today about, you know, um, just relearning, you know, I mean, they brought up the therapy boundaries. I didn't even know what the hell they were talking about when they said you need to set boundaries. Like what's held a boundary? So I just, Started to describe exactly. my thought boundary, and they go, I believe they they go that's not a boundary. October. They go, that's not a boundary, that's a wall. <laughs> like, what's the difference? I believe the topic of boundaries came up in October mm-hmm. when I hosted, and um, one of the questions on the panel are boundaries exactly. How? What do they look like? What do they sound like? How do we actually mm-hmm. set them? So, yeah, some again, that's part of us as a kid still. Um, and so many of us grow up into having this people-pleasing mentality because we weren't taught to set boundaries. We weren't taught to say no. We weren't taught to say I, we weren't taught to have a voice. And if we did, the voice wasn't listened to. You were just a bad part mm-hmm. of the kid or respectful kid. Mm-hmm. So we still, some of us as adults, again, have, we're learning to advocate and stand up for that whatever age kid that still lives within us. They're depending on us guys as the adults to go to bat for them. I would fight tooth, nail, and claw if anyone remotely came close to me and tried to do the same crap of you <laughs> talking, put down hitting, slapping, anything that remotely happened to me during those years as a kid. I mm-hmm. would fight tooth, nail, and claw. And we, so we're being our own warriors and our own advocates, and we're learning how to do those things day by day. So setting boundaries, yeah, it's something that some of us probably don't know how to do until after we become adults, and we need help with setting those boundaries because, like you said, someone else said setting a boundary means putting up a wall. So in the mm-hmm. negative connotation, putting up a wall means nothing's getting in, when the reality is you're putting up boundaries to the point that you don't let anything negative in, but you can control the flow of what goes in and what goes out. How much is accepted? How much isn't accepted? It's about you being in control of that and no longer about anyone else telling you that they're going to step on your toes, they're going to do whatever, they're going to say whatever with no consequences. That's what the purpose of setting boundaries is. And a lot of us don't realize that uh, we still have that people-pleasing mentality today and we're not setting healthy boundaries with clear expectations. So kudos to you for that. Well, it was interesting for me, too, because there wasn't the physical abuse. It was the emotional and, and yes. so, like, you know, I would think to myself, yeah, if somebody hit me, you know, I'd be like, no way, you know, but it wasn't that. So because it was, 
you know, the like you said, the manipulation and all that kind of stuff. You know, it was uh, um, I didn't have my own body, you know, space around me that I could say, no, you, you know, you're getting too close here. You know, get back. You know, the emotional was just I didn't comprehend that I had a right to my own space around me or even my my own body. You know. Um, and I want to tell you that it no. wasn't your fault to not have it. We we as survivors no. have got to remove the guilt from the adult in us thinking that we could have done something different or somehow yeah. we had control over protecting ourselves when we didn't. That is what the purpose of having these people, parents, caregivers, they were supposed to be our protectors. So when yeah. they didn't teach us healthy boundaries, <laughs> they didn't teach us how to say no, they didn't teach us that subconsciously or otherwise. They didn't teach us that because it means that they would not have had as much opportunity to abuse us. So right. you can't be an abuser and be someone who's on the opposite side of not abusing at the same time. It doesn't work Nurturing, that way. Yeah. And, and the word in and of itself, I tell people, break it down. But we're talking about rising abuse now, yes, but break the word abuse now. It literally means the opposite of something useful. It is mm-hmm. abnormally used. So anything that is not helpful, it is not useful, it is abusive, contrary mm-hmm. to being helpful. And regardless of how that abuse shows up. And so an abuser, but in their head, again, they're unempathetic, they're incompassionate head, they think that as a kid when they smack you up against the head or they hit you with a baseball bat or they molested you or they raped you, there's absolutely no consciousness of anything in their body that you even exist, for one, as a human being, and two, the things that are being done to you are hurting you because they cannot be abusive and useful at the same time. They just simply cannot. In the Mm -hmm. literal sense of it, salt will never taste like sugar. Sugar will never taste like salt. You can try to combine the two together as much as you want. All you're going to get is salt, that sugar that tastes like salt, right, and salt that tastes like sugar. They will never be Mm -hmm. one and the same because they cannot, mm-hmm. that it's not the physical, genetic, DNA, biological makeup of what salt and sugar is. And that's how I try to with our abusers. So they, 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 it, it will just never happen for them, right? That is the point of us being survivors and healing and getting help and staying with therapy and getting involved with organizations like NASCA and being able to call in and listen to other stories and understanding that, oh, okay, well, this happened to me or that happened to me. If nothing else, I want the NASA family and the community to to just hear our stories and know that you're not alone, that abuse is real, what happened to you was real, what happened to you was not your fault. And it is okay to be in a point to where you want to relieve that, you want to get rid of it. You won't ever, I won't ever have not have these things of abuse. But I am happy to say that I can move away from being emotionally tied in a negative way 
to what the abuse did to me years ago. I'm on mm-hmm. the opposite, more positive end of what the abuse is, which is why it's easier for me to share my story now. <laughs> All right. I want to tie yeah. in these next two topics here. So we can spend a little bit of time on the last two before we wrap up. So these next two topics are, again, we brought it up a little bit earlier, the abuse needs, abuser, I'm sorry, the abuser needs to face their fear of accountability. So we talked about them doing any and everything possible to get away from accountability. They try to make it be your fault. Uh, I know abusers, as in my family, they uh, like to celebrate every birthday, every Christmas. They buy presents. They like to spend money. They like to go on trips. But to actually sit down in a conversation and answer the question, why did you abuse me? A very simple question. They would rather start an argument about me leaving my bike in the backyard and the dog got out of the gate when I was 12 years old that I have absolutely no memory of. They would rather start an argument on that as a way to really truly switch the narrative of the conversation away from me and my healing and them and responsibility. Um, also, the second, next to the, one of the last points is um, the abuser cannot separate guilt from shame. They don't know the difference between the two. So guilt, shame, and fear, I want to attack those three things at once. These are things that an abuser, um, when they are not actively abusing, um, whether either they've grown older and their uh, victims have moved on, moved away. Um, I really do try to tell people the worst thing you can do to an active abuser as you become an adult is to have your own children and have your children interact with the abusers before you really start your own healing. Because even though they, uh, in my case in point, was my abusers, my mother and father, I never had children, but my sister and brother both did, and I saw a complete shift in the face or the mask that they put on with the abuse. And so the questions my sister and brother and I still had about abuse becoming young people and young adults on our own were never answered. They were never addressed. But as they began to have their own children, um, Periodically, my sister, brother, and I, we would bring up the topic of abuse between the three of us, either with our extended families or whatever. But we began to speak on it, you know, and it wasn't so much of a secret anymore. But as my sister and brother began to have the kids, I saw my parents show up and buy the best car seat and want to have the best first birthdays and want to do every single thing to, again, make everyone else around them in the community believe that somehow they were magically these really good people at grandparents, but you were really crappy people to us as parents. So they do everything possible to avoid to avoid guilt and to avoid shame. What I realized is psychologically it's also their emotional sector is still very much fragmented as 
children or juveniles. So wherever they learned or themselves got introduced to abusive behavior, their brain still very much operates at that level. And they themselves never receive tools on how to be self-supporting in their own right to actually face and deal with emotional conflict. So feeling of fear to them is something very strange because the world just tells you to be an adult and you're supposed to have it together. Feeling guilt about something. Actually did something bad and did something wrong and, oh, my goodness, I feel bad about it, which means you now got to approach the empathy switch that some of them just don't have. The shame of it is that they will feel shameful because now they actually have to come to terms with the fact that I did bad things, but, oh, my gosh, does this make me a bad person? And now you're talking about people that are getting older in their lives, and, again, they're very easily able to manipulate and maneuver through life and wear these different masks because a neighbor may have never seen um, my father abuse his wife or abuse us as kids, so she may have thought he was the greatest guy in the world because he was a good neighbor to her. He may have been a very good employee on his job and never used anyone in his job. So people would think the totality of him as a man is that he's a good man because he showed up and was a very good employee. Um, so they will never, um, unless they're on their own journey to healing and acknowledgement, they will never acknowledge their own fears, any of their guilt, or any of their shame. So how does anyone feel about that? I agree with that. Um, um, I read a book called Healing the Shame That Binds You. And um, I didn't know the difference between guilt and shame. Um, I I always interchanged those two words, you know. Um, mainly, I always said I felt guilty, but a lot of it was shame, and it wasn't something bad that I did. It was I thought I was bad. I thought I was a bad person, and um, I ended up putting my kids in permanent foster care because. I knew I wasn't the kind of mom I wanted to be, and I knew I wasn't the mom my kids deserved. And because of my mental health, you know, I was in not a psych wards, and, and I couldn't be the parent I wanted to be, you know. And uh, um, fortunately, even though other people, you know, in in uh, different groups and programs I belong to kept saying, I can't believe what's wrong with you. You don't want to get your kids back. They kept saying, my kids are stable. You know, my kids are doing well. I'm not taking them back. I don't know if I'm going to end up back in the psych ward, you know, or, or you know, what's going to happen. And didn't understand that. It was the hardest thing I ever did was placing my kids in foster care. But it was the best thing I ever did. My kids wouldn't be the people they were today, they are today, if if it wasn't for that choice, you know. But I knew that that uh, I had so much work to do on myself that I couldn't be a good parent, you know. 
And uh, a lot of people didn't understand that. And I took on a lot of the pressure of them trying to, you know, I don't know if they were trying to make me feel bad or they just didn't understand the situation, you know. Um, I I don't know if that even pertains to what we're talking about, but it just hit me, guilt and shame, you know. Um, you know, so, I mean, so like if you steal something from the store, you feel guilty, but if, you know, something happens to you and and it's not guilt that you feel, it's shame. You know, it, it was my biological father's shame, a guilt that he put on me that caused my shame. And uh, I had a lot of shame about not being able to be the kind of mom I wanted to be. But when I was able to break through that and and say it out loud. Another feather in the cap of that narcissistic type personality that he was able to manipulate you that way and transfer, again, any responsibility that he could have taken, transferring it to you. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then you All know, right, we got I about fifteen making... minutes that we're down to here, guys. Yeah. And yeah. um I'd like to hear I wanna get down to the last two topics. That. We can put these together as well and again invite anyone to call in. Anyone that's listening, you wanna have anything to share with us, we here at the NASCA family are here for you. So our last two topics says don't expect anyone to forgive you. Again, this is speaking directly to the abuser. And then the last topic says the abuser needs to learn to forgive themselves. So on the topic of forgiveness, these are two things that an active abuser, again, active means that it's still active in their brain. They don't have to physically still be out hurting anyone or have access to people that they're hurting. But the activity of the abuse is still in their head because they haven't done the work to understand what abuse is. So an active abuser um, will possibly, if they do try, to uh, seek out any acknowledgement between you, they are actually afraid that you won't forgive them. They're afraid that, I don't know, you're going to curse them and damn them to the gods or however that works. So, again, that's another part of them not being able to face their fear. They are afraid of not being loved, afraid of uh, uh, no one caring about them, even though they spent their lives not caring about people. And then um, in order for them to forgive themselves, they have to acknowledge that there is something that needs to be forgiven. So forgiveness for the abuser is, and for anyone, is solely about the abuser, whether or not it's about me. So I want to caution anyone that, again, if they're still actively abusing, the manipulation may still be there, the gaslighting may still be there, and they may just kind of skirt around the topic of the abuse and not really deal with the totality of it for either how deep it ran, how aggressive it was, how long it went on. They will do just enough to get you pulled in to feeling sorry for them so they can get some type of, I'm sorry, please forgive me, because all they want is for you to stop confronting them about the abuse. I tell people it's a lot to do with you hear this with people that are 
uh, on the deathbed confession. They're sick. They're dying. They they are getting electrocuted or something. They have these deathbed confessions, and they'd like to blurt out, I love you, I'm sorry. This is what they take the entirety of your life and a good chunk of their own life waiting to say because they feel, for one, that that's the thing that you want to hear, and that few little words in that sentence is going to make you stop talking about the abuse. It's going to make you stop confronting them about the abuse. So be really, really careful on abusers using forgiveness as a way to escape. And I'll leave that there. So what does anyone feel about that as we wrap up tonight? Well, when after after um, my biological father went went to jail, his mother told me, well, he said he was sorry. And I said, is he sorry for what he did or is he sorry he got caught? Because I think he's sorry he got caught. I don't think he's sorry for what he did because he, he outright always said that he was not sorry for what he did, you know. And And I think he was saying it to her to get to me, you know to try to get me back into his web or whatever you want to say. Because my um my first husband did that too. He he'd apologize, you know. And and you know, I won't act like that, whatever. But, you know, it wasn't true. <laughs> um, I'd feel sorry for him and and want to believe that he was gonna change, but he didn't because he wasn't sincere about it. And I agree with, you know, like those deathbed confessions, whatever. It's, it's, they want to they wanna get what they want to get off, off their chest. Like, you know, well, I said I was sorry, and now I can die peacefully. I don't know. <laughs> but but well, I never believe that he was what sorry. happens, again, the, the forgiveness that they seek or the mm-hmm. apology that they give it has nothing to do with you and helping you deal with the quality of your life and how it's been affected because of their abuse. They just want to feel better about themselves. Right. I just I just want it's to get rid of the guilt and the shame. Well, I said I was sorry, and if you really listen to the mm-hmm. connotation of how people emote certain <laughs> words, it is mm-hmm. if they step right back into their 12-year-old selves. They literally change something in their physicality of the body changes, look for the mm-hmm. eyes, how it changes, looks for facial expressions and how it changes, because, again, they haven't learned communication, effective communication skills as an adult. Their emotional state is still very much what people would generally call arrested development, 12 years old. And so they revert back to that, and they're used to doing that as a way of whining as a way of of reducing themselves and making themselves feel small because in your eyes, if I can make you think I'm feeling small, I'm so sorry, even with the fake tears and everything, that you will kind of be a little less relentless in your quest to seek answers. You're going to feel sorry for them as they give you this half-assed apology, for lack of a better, a better word. 
So to me, I don't do apologies. I tell any adult that everywhere that I go because there's nothing that I say or do that I am not in conscious control of as a 49-year-old woman within my body, within my being, within my words. So there's nothing that I do accidental, which is what an apology stands for to me, something that accidentally happens, right? So maybe if I'm walking into Walmart, and I am walking down the aisle, and my buggy kind of makes it out the aisle while someone else is coming down, and I didn't see them, and I accidentally hit their car with my car. That's an accident. And the first thing I will say is, oh, I'm sorry. But conscious behaviors and how you treat people and move through life and interact with people, no, there's no reason that I should apologize for something because I were cognizant and conscious of how I treat people and what the impact of how I treat people, especially in a negative way, and the impact of what it will have. So the abusers will try to use the I'm sorry, I didn't mean it again. It comes as a deathbed confession. It comes as something, something that they can ease their own conscience and actually deal with the fact that they're dying and afraid of what's going to happen on the other side of dying because they've been told you're going to hell. You're a bad person. This is going to happen to you. You're going to get treated this way. It happens a lot. So be very cognizant of that type of manipulative behavior when you're dealing with these abusers because, again, for their benefit, as any forgiveness should be, you asking for and seeking for forgiveness should be for you, but not to the point where you manipulate the forgiveness out of the people you've hurt without actually doing the work. So most people will tell you that's what a true apology is. Change in action moving forward is the real apology, not pretending that the abuse didn't hurt you as well as much as it did or it didn't happen the way you think. And, well, oh, well, I'm sorry if it did happen. That's the abuser's way to manipulate himself out of real acknowledgement and acceptance and accountability for what they've done and how they treat people. So I know it's the end of the – it's like almost the end of the show, but so I have a quick question. So, um, you know, there was neglect. There was um, – you know, um, I wasn't there for my kids and stuff, and I ended up um, writing a five-page uh, men's letter to my daughter, and I really sincerely had tried to make amends with her, but she always kept saying, Mom, that was in the past. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. So I finally just wrote her a letter, and um, I made sure that three people read it to make sure I was um, not saying I'm sorry, but, you know, like I'm sorry, but I was abused. I'm sorry about this. I'm sorry about that. Um, and you could say the butt word many different ways, in which discounts your first sentence. But I did make um, this amends letter, and, and things have gotten so much better with my daughter um, because she just she didn't want to hear it. And um, you know, but I I'm, I said you know you must have felt like um, um, that you know you might have felt like I was abandoning you. And I'm really sorry that you had to go through that. So is do you believe that there is really um, a way to say that I'm sorry that when you're genuine? How's that? I don't really know 
if that made a question or not. But if you could comment on that before we end, I'd appreciate it. I think that the real I'm sorry that is you doing the work now. So if you said your daughter has received it and said it in the past, I think your version of receive knowing that she says, okay, mom, I get it. And her giving an acknowledgement because you said I'm sorry. Her version of doing the same thing is saying, mom, don't worry about it, it's in the past, right? That's her version of saying the exact, you may just need to hear it a different way. Um, if you're doing the work and you're saying your relationship is getting better, continue to do the work. If anything comes up, uh, it could be a repressed memory. It could be something that um, she hasn't fully digested or grasped. Be mm-hmm. prepared for her to bring it to you, and you respond in love. You respond in kindness. You take full acknowledgement of accountability and you're fully aware of it. Remain open to it about it. I think maybe there's a part of you that is probably still hanging on to the guilt that we just said about it that hasn't totally let you let go of Mm -hmm. what happened between you and your daughter. But if she I ended up the letter with, you know, if you do want to talk about anything more in the future, you know, um, please bring it up and, and we can discuss it, you know. At the end of the letter, that's what I said. And I said, I, I want to help your relationship. Mm-hmm. And if you were very clear on that, you've done it. You've done the work. So mm-hmm. if that's the thing, if there's something more that has to happen, she will bring it to you. Be mm-hmm. open when it does. It may not look like what you think it'll look like. It it could be anger. It could be sadness. It could be whatever. But if she brings it to you, be open. Accept it. Acknowledge it. Take full accountability of it and still be the mom to her that she needs. I think a lot of us don't really understand outside of our childhood and growing up. But once you get to where you know you have adult sons and daughters, you would never again have the child that she was. So those years are gone. So you have to learn to now respect them on their level as the adult that they are or they're trying to be, and you respond to them in kind. So as I told my father the other day, I have totally accepted that you will never be the father to me that I needed. And you come up with whatever excuse in the book that I'm not the daughter that you needed from what I was when I was a 15-year-old teenager because you have no idea who I am now as a 49-year-old woman, and you refuse to do so because you refuse to get over the first hurdle is we address the abuse. And then I'll allow you into my life and the things that I have going on as an adult now. So always remember that the child in them is the child that you had, but the person that you're in communication with now is now the adult, and she needs the respect of being and giving her her space, the words, the encouragement, whatever she says she needs from you as the adult now, that's how you show up, no longer as her being kid and you revisiting the things 
that she did because if she's not ready to revisit them or she doesn't want to or she has completely put them behind her, it's not fair for her to continue to revisit the conversation because Mm -hmm. of you still hanging on to some residual guilt, if that makes sense. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thank you. Well, we've had quite a show tonight, ladies, and I really appreciate it. Monica Boglin from Washington State uh, does these shows once a month, uh, and we're really grateful that you do it. It's the um, the Thursday night show. Is it the third Thursday of the month, Monica, I believe you do, uh, or the fourth? And anyway. Um, fourth Thursday, yes. The fourth Thursday fourth. of every month fourth. I'll be on. I've been That's working right. on my new social media handles, guys, so if anyone needs to reach okay. out to me right now, my Instagram oh. Is Miss B M S B T H A teacher Miss B the teacher? Um, you can reach me there. Uh, you can. I have an open chat text that anyone can chat with me. It is six seven eight six three two one zero nine eight. But I can be reached on any one of those following up after the show, um, or call, leave a message, email here, anything with Bill, and he'll get the information to me. Oh, I sure will. And Victoria Kelly, I really want to express my appreciation to you, too. You guys held this show together. I just was kind of out of it, which I apologize well, for. Well, we're hoping you're going to feel better. Became, I want you to feel better. A, Go and take plenty yeah. of cough medicine and pass mm-hmm. out okay. and enjoy the rest okay. of the evening. Got Thank you, Bill. I'll play the music for Thank you, guys. You, God bless you both. All right. Take yep. care. Happy holidays, everyone. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye now.